Hello! Welcome to the bookening, part two of the bookening. You may be expecting to hear a certain uh, Mr. What was his name? The fat one? Nathan. The, the most Nathan. fat one. I, Definitely Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, I mean, there are a couple fat ones. But right, but this, this one was... one, like, really fat one with... Right, we're talking about the difference between Jumbo and Dumbo here. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. was Jumbo. I guess I'm Dumbo. <laughs> so I, I didn't say that. I'm <laughs> sort of surprised that he fit into this abyss, actually. Yeah. But uh, I am the mysterious phantom here, and I'm hosting this part two of a discussion about Marilyn Robinson's Gilead here. I'm taking over hosting duties, although in fact it's not really hosting that I'm doing. We're playing a, a little game, me, along with the Reverend Mensel. You are a pastor who... Uh, Knows something about books. Uh, normally, they call me the pastor who's a master of reading. Okay, that's a that's a little gimmicky. I think uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm for that at all. <laughs> Sounds like a bit of claptrap. Uh, <laughs> I've always thought so, but I've rolled with it. I, yes, well, and uh, you, you, uh, I don't know what your function is. Really, are you? Uh, what do you bring to the table? I'm the PhD ABD. And, and your name is? Brandon Chastine. So I'm here with the Reverend Menzel, a man of the cloth, and uh, Brandon Chastine, a, a PhD what? ABD. PhD ABD. And this is part two of a little game we're playing. You see, I had my Mexican laborers dig giant abysses beneath both of these fellows and myself, and... <laughs> We're all sitting with trapdoors that I've installed, of which I have the levers. And at any time, if I don't like the answers to the literary questions that I'm asking these fellows about Gilead, then I shall pull the levers and it will be their demise. But to keep it fair, uh, there's also a lever that can end me. But I'm sure that That's not so fair when you hold it, though, is it? No, but uh, nobody ever said that life was fair or that... This game, this mysterious game, which I've called the most dangerous game. Nobody ever said that that was fair. Except for you, just just yeah. now. Did I, did I say that? <laughs> you just, said it was just fair. Just now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that doesn't sound like me at all. <laughs> Nobody ever called me the fair phantom. I've only ever been called the mysterious phantom. In any case, let's now continue with our discussion of Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Are you ready for that, fellows? Yeah. Bring it. Sure. Okay, let's go. My hands are on the levers. Two of them. Yours and yours. <laughs> if I'm going to pull my lever, I'll have to... Do it with your elbow. <laughs> Do it with my elbow. <laughs> Shall we move on in our discussion and in the most dangerous game? Right. Man. Go ahead. The game is called Man. Do it. Oh, yes. I, I was just saying, was... like, right, man. Like, you're a hippie. Or, like, you're like, right, man. Right on, man. No, I was just recalling. Right, man. Hurry, okay. I, I see what you're doing. Pastor Ames. John Ames. Let's talk about him. Go on. <laughs> okay. You just want us to talk about him, huh? Well, I'll open the floor. I have more specific questions, but what would you like to say about Pastor Ames? Anything stand out to you about him? It seems like a sweet guy. Yeah, I was going to say something along those lines. He's sweet, quiet, almost exactly what you would expect, like a British parochial pastor to have been. Yes. Very small town. Not a lot of fire or gumption con- to him. Gumption. It, it, there's a certain conscientiousness about him and his knowledge of people and of the world that's commendable. And yet it's very interesting what he talks about and what he doesn't talk about. He, We hardly get to know his congregation. I thought that was a rather... And maybe that's just not what you write to your seven-year-old when you're writing him a letter from no, your... No, but he does know them, and they call him over to do his, to do plumbing, and, yeah. uh, and he, he helps did, that one woman die. He helps the woman die, and then he can tell the members of his flock by casseroles or whatever, by what they cook. He can pick them apart. So he knows them pretty intimately in that sense that, oh, this must be so-and-so and and this must be, he can go through the the list of, you know, where the food's from. And so that indicates a familiarity and an intimacy with the people. He says he's retiring and sort of regrets maybe not knowing people as well as he should, but you don't get the sense that he doesn't care. So there's that. You get the sense that he's at the end of a long run and... Yeah, and and he he even says he feels anxiety over, over his flock and... He has that line where he says, anxiety over the flock after I die is, the the flip side of that is lack of trust in Jesus who cares for his people at all times and all places. And I just have to repent of being afraid for 
their future, which I thought was sweet. Yes, I thought that sort of thing was very sweet as well. At some point in the novel, I actually scribbled something along the lines, I think, you know, maybe 70 pages in or so, I scribbled the words, where is God in this? Because Pastor Ames really hadn't mentioned God very much. It had only been, he'd mentioned the Bible and certain stories, but there hadn't been much of Jesus or of God, and I wondered. But then as the novel went on, God began to feature more prominently in Ames's reflections. So that was a thing I noticed. (laughs) True. Yeah. Now, liking Ames, of course, though, is different than respecting Ames. Did you respect him? Is he a sort of man that you'd want to have as your congregationalist pastor? No, I would not want John Ames to be my pastor. I would want my pastor to have certain uh, characteristics of John Ames, but what John Ames doesn't seem to have, what he lacks the most of, is any real sense of the holiness of God and real fear of God. Um, And that comes through over and over in what he says and how he approaches, as as he approaches death, as he thinks about people, as he thinks about his brother who announced the faith, or I guess you could say the central, the chief antagonist of the novel, Jack Bowton. He just doesn't seem, you know, he's, he's essentially, you know, a universalist, right? I mean, or awfully close to it. So for all of his um, appreciation for the beauty of the world as God made it, his understanding of suffering, his the practical wisdom that he brings to interacting with people and understanding people and understanding himself uh, for all of that, yet he's not much better than just a good philosopher, than just a good psychologist, than just a good grandfather or dad who doesn't know the first thing about about God, but who is a keen observer of the world as God made it and of human nature. And it doesn't matter where he draws, what sources he draws. He's drawing from the best sources. He's drawing from the well of God's wisdom, and you see it all over the place. And I was at times embarrassed for myself by how much better Ames and therefore Marilyn Robinson breathes scripture, breathes a God- centered or at least a a spiritually minded, I don't know how to say what I want to say. I think that is what you're trying to say, if I understand you correctly. (laughs) Help me, mysterious phantom. You're my only hope. I don't know that that really helps the the game very well, but (laughs) I'll give you some help in this case. We'll allow one phone uh, an enemy. Phone a phantom. Phone a phantom. There you go. Maybe that should be the name of the game. (laughs) Although then there'd be nothing but phoning the phantom, which (laughs) seems to be a terrible game. And anyway, in any case, I totally lost my train of thought. Well, so, I mean, I'm just going to jump back in here. Um, I felt often throughout the course of reading the book the same way I felt when I was with my friend Nathan, who you unceremoniously killed, and we went and visited some churches downtown um, looking for places to shoot video, some of the older churches in downtown Bloomington, and we ran across all kinds of people who, you know, one of the churches we went to, they have, they open up the whole, uh, 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 what do you call it, Fellowship Hall thing, place. They open up the whole Fellowship Hall during the winter for homeless people to come in and sleep, and then they come in, they have volunteers on a rotation to come in and make breakfast every morning, hot breakfast every morning, and uh, you feel shamed. Um, I felt shamed by uh, the care and concern shown shown for people, and yet it was all sort of a mile wide and an inch deep stuff. It was real compassion for real people, um, and that's what, that's what John Ames has, and that's what's good about John Ames, and that's one of the things to take from John Ames. But real compassion and real concern for real people doesn't start and end with making them feel comfortable and, fo- and putting clothes on their backs and food in their bellies, although that's important. It starts with caring for their eternal souls. That's what he doesn't, doesn't appear to do by any stretch. He's quite damnable. Yeah. yeah he's a good mouthpiece for... Robinson, I think he's absolutely is, um, and does it quite a bit of sermonizing for. Yeah, exactly. So he's like she said, she wants to write about the goodness and things, and so there's that part where he talks about Baptist churches where they have the habit of getting people up and they confess their sin, and he doesn't really see the point of that, right? Remember this part? This might be towards the end of the novel. Yes, um, he doesn't favor that. He doesn't like it. And, um, or at least he doesn't see the reason behind it. And so you can see 
what she was saying about O'Connor right there. He wants to be a better yeah. person, but he doesn't want to deal with guilt. And that's his whole focus is just being a good person who sees the good in the world and the good in people. Yeah. I almost felt as though if I knew Ames in real life, I'd say perhaps that he was a a weak but good man. Yeah, you would. But you, if I knew sort of like knowing Mr. him Rogers, as, you know. Yes, knowing him as Marilyn Robinson's mouthpiece, knowing her authorial intent and knowing that she's putting him forward as perhaps a prototypically good man is where it becomes bothersome insofar as Ames is just a flawed man that I knew that was a dying pastor that never really understood some things. I suppose I could perhaps forgive him that, although, as you said, some of those offenses would be great sins. But insofar as Robinson doesn't see it, that's where it becomes bothersome to me, the mysterious phantom. Yeah, because when you strip it down, it's basically Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. Yeah. It's a man dealing with the fact that he's stayed home his whole life. Here are the, some things he can leave to his children, and at the end, he's an okay guy. He's he's a good man. He doesn't yell at Zuzu. No, he doesn't. He's a better man than Jimmy Stewart, I guess. <laughs> That's saying something. <laughs> he never would have Zuzu's yelled pedals. at Zuzu. No, he never would have. Yeah. I don't think he knows how to yell. No. Sort of a word that maybe the young kid probably didn't end up getting very much discipline in those seven years, but yeah. I don't know. He's 77, whatever. Got him a break. No, uh, arthritic cans arthritic hands make light discipline yeah now, <laughs> president obama said that john ames was one of his most favorite characters in all of literature what do we make of that uh he's from a united uh church of christ background right ucc i think that it's john ames is the kind of i mean we know that he went to what's his face is what's that guy's name church John Ames did? No. He, John Ames went to his dad's church. Did you read the book? <laughs> I find this altercation Uh-oh. to be most amusing. His hands on the lever. <laughs> Is he going to throw Just me, or me you? I don't know. I, don't know. I triple dog dare you for those to go on. Barack Obama is from a United Church of Christ background, but. What, this is some know, controversial pastor. I know who you're talking about, but I can't remember his name. Chicago. Anyhow, it's the kind of, it makes perfect sense to me, at least. Yeah, I if mean. If he wants to flatter middle America, that's another way to do it. Obama is our most John Ames past, uh, president. Now, Mr. Menzel, I have, using my uh, mysterious acumen, ferreted out the information that you are, in fact, a man of the cloth. Was there anything particularly resonant or particularly not resonant or done wrong about Ames from that point of view? Well, it'd be nice if Ames were a good pastor who had good theology and really understood the holiness of God and fear of God. Maybe we should tell the listeners, You, maybe you fellows should tell the listeners, where exactly does Ames fail? What, what are we talking about when we say that he doesn't have true compassion for people? He is a fan of pedo communion. He's a fan of feline communion, for crying out loud. <laughs> or no, feline <laughs> baptism, as it were. <laughs> he has a rather mystical view of the sacraments this <laughs> Mr. Ames. Uh, yeah, he does. Well, his view of sin and judgment, for one. The closest he gets is that one sermon that he was proud of that he where he preached against the war. And that's as close as he gets to any sort of fire. And all that was was him seeing, what was it, the flu, as being God's judgment on us for he didn't going. He preached that. No, yeah, he got to, he burned it. Yeah. But he wished he had. He wished he had saved it. It makes it into the novel, so we know that that's what he thought. But it comes out to basically war is evil, God hates war. There's no purpose behind war, and so God's judgment on us. It was a nice thought that we didn't listen to the warning sign, and so we've been in a state of war ever since. That was intriguing, but in the end it was empty, like a lot of other deep philosophical things he said. When he fails to—I've got to figure out how to articulate my thought here. There are a number of major characters who are Sinners, who are people who have strayed from the faith, prodigal sons or prodigal fathers, as the case may be in the story. And Ames never ultimately brings a hard edge or speaks of God's judgment to any one of these fellows. There's his brother, Edwards. Edwards is a perfect example. Edwards is an agnostic or an atheist, and 
but he's a good man, so he's okay. No big deal. Yes, and Ames's father, who eventually, in a sense, walks away from the faith, walks away from the pastorate. He has an understanding of him as, as a good man that they just didn't quite understand each other. His grandfather, not, not even his grandfather, can he find it in himself to condemn for any of his wildness. And of course, Boughton, he gives a blessing, which is, you know, a very beautiful sort of uh, temptual. You, you fellows ever read uh, East of Eden? Yeah, One of yeah, my, have, one of my yeah. favorite novels made me cry quite a bit. But uh, I really right. think you should consider hosting Mysterious this podcast. You're doing f- Phantoms Cry. Mysterious phantoms can sometimes be sad phantoms. In fact, there may be a great sadness that lies at the heart of the mystery of all such phantoms as I. So, in answer to your question, yes. But where were we? Oh, Boughton, yes. He, Boughton, commits this great sin, says that he's an atheist, despises the God's parsing of people, despises predestination, despises any of the workings of God, and Ames never has a word against that. Not even a compassionate, soft, gentle word. He just has blessings and thoughts and things to ponder. He never he never has any real concern for Edward or for young Boughton's soul, as it were, in the novel. So there's some very sort of beautiful, cathartic sort of things that remind you a little bit of all the Tim Shirley stuff in East of Eden, to a lesser degree in this novel, I would say. But nothing ever comes of it. Yeah, I don't... It's both a problem with Ames and also a problem with the world Robinson builds in the novel, because I don't think that she wants... I don't think she wants there to be a sense of judgment and sin. I think she wants that. No, to be. and that's why the catharsis at the end is so much thinner than at the end of Steinbeck. Because yeah. what Steinbeck is committed to is dealing with sin and guilt, and yeah. what she's committed to not dealing with and refusing to deal with and pretending doesn't have to be dealt with is sin and guilt. Yeah. And so the catharsis at the end, it's not unmoving, but it's it's not nearly as cathartic as as if she would have built a world that more accurately reflects the world that we live in and more accurately, I think, reflects how people come to the end of their lives, maybe not with a hardened Congregationalist minister who spent his life carefully avoiding thinking about judgment, but, man, can you imagine preparing for death and not feeling the weight of guilt mm-hmm. and not feeling and not looking around you and, you know, and thinking about how to deal with and process and try to throw a last life jacket, as it were, to Jack Bowton and to right. these yeah. people, well, to these other that people, is. and try to make sure that your son, who you're writing to, will feel the weight of God's judgment and the weight of the fact that he's going to die as you're in the process of doing. Yeah, you get the, well. The cover of these books are in watercolors, <laughs> and you get the sense that all this is washed over with like a um, twilight kind of watercolor gleam to it. It wouldn't be doing. Marilyn Robinson, and credit to say it this way, but I'm going to say it this way anyway. It's sort of like a, a Thomas Kincaid mm-hmm. painting. She's much more artful than Thomas Kincaid. That's not what I'm saying, but Thomas Kincaid is everything is sort of cast in that sort of glow of nostalgia and warmth. And, you know, he tries to create scenes as if the fall never happened. Yeah. And the only way that Ames can process the fall is through suffering but not through sin. And so he has, he has a decent understanding of suffering and the effect that suffering has on us, the positive effect that suffering has on us, but he doesn't connect. The only sin he can connect suffering to is war. And so the plague comes because of war, maybe, and which is, is a, a good line to draw as a pastor, depending on the circumstances. But if all we have to ever repent of is the national wars by our government over, you know, run by our government overlords, then... Well, lucky us, you know, we don't have anything to repent of. Yeah, there's a sort of effeminacy to the whole thing. Yeah, well, it's written by a woman, imagine yeah, that. Imagine that. Well, if you think about the end of the East of, of, of East of Eden, the character has committed a horrible sin, and the Tim Shull moment comes when his father gives him the freedom to go on to, you know, make his own destiny. I'm sure there's a less cheesy way of saying that. But it's all from the point of view of someone who has committed a terrible crime, who is condemnable, and who then finds the grace to go on. The grace that Ames gives to Boughton at the end is more the grace of just, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all sort of zigzagging towards the straight and narrow, so... Whatever, man. Whatever, man. Blessing be upon you. Yeah, I mean, you 
don't want to make it out like Steinbeck's catharsis and grace and forgiveness don't fall short. They're still, you know, just between a father and a son and that don't take eternity into account, but there's just so much more reality and depth to it. So much more bite, maybe. Yeah, there's this... I said the watercolor, it's a sickly sweetness that it's the same that you see when you go to these places like, I don't know, I'm thinking of these hipster places. It all feels like it's going to crumble. Like it's all meant to just paste over something that they don't want to pay any attention to. And they're all pretending. It's all make-believe. And it's all nice make-believe. When you build a world like this, it does seem real when you're in it. And it seems all nice. And it seems like you can smell the honeysuckle. And it seems... You you fill the sun rising with him at the church, but then it all collapses when you try to blow on it too hard. Yes, this was uh, very much, I felt, a... uh, And of course, uh, perhaps if this discussion continues this long and I don't kill you both, we'll we'll all give a summation of our feelings, perhaps, about the novel. But it it did, I thought, have a sort of a a Teflon quality. I'm sure I'm the first person to ever use Teflon as a metaphor for any sort of artistic endeavor or the reaction thereof. But it did have a sort of a, a Teflon quality to it, in my view, that you you were rather moved by it. You know, it was like looking at a great sunset or, or, or a Thomas Kincaid, perhaps, is a, is a apt metaphor for it. Although, it, of course, it is more artful than that. But you were moved by it as you went along. But then I did not find that a lot of it stuck with me afterwards. And I haven't given it a lot of thought since I read it. And I think perhaps you gentlemen men have hit upon why. Yeah, well, I think if we're going to give Robinson the most credit possible, put the best take on this, it's that she doesn't want you to think about the novel. She doesn't even so much want you to think about Ames. She wants you to think about the moment and real life, mm-hmm. the world around you. And to, she wants to give you a sense of poetry about uh, the life you're living and the moments that you face. And in that respect, I found it effective. Uh, the way that she writes forces you to slow down. This isn't a novel that you can cram, which was a point of frustration for me as I neared the deadline for this podcast. But the way that she writes, the style, the pace, the tone, she wants you to slow down. She wants you to stop and put down your phone or turn off the TV or whatever and enjoy the sunset, hear the silence, hear the birds in the trees, hear the crickets, notice your son out the window playing and think about how fleeting life is and how beautiful it all is in all of its brokenness. And and I found that that aspect of it, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't gripped by the story or even so much by the characters, but I was moved uh, to think about my own life, to think about my uh, my family, to think my father, my grandfathers, my, my wife, my kids. Um, and so in that sense, it did have a, a really positive effect on me. And some of those vignettes, I should say, will probably stick yes. with me. The the sun and the moon in the graveyard, the bubbles right. that the boy and his mother are blowing. Several of the sort of, you imagine them, if it was a movie, it would be in slow motion, sort of, right. where you slow Little down scenes. and you suddenly hear the crickets and all that sort of thing. But it comes across more like uh, a series of, of videos or a series of, uh, almost like YouTube videos or, or Vimeo videos of yeah. just sort of like little... I'm going to slow life down and yeah, it'll, we'll have some, some slow motion and we'll have some lens flare and we'll, you know, it'll be nice and warm and evocative. She's a good poet. Yeah. It's very, she has a very poetic vision of the world. She like, yeah, she makes you see things differently. Like I had never thought of a sprinkler as letting us see what rain is like in sunlight. Yeah. That was beautiful. Yeah. It was rather beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and those kinds of things are on, in nearly every page, she has something like that that's like, man, man, that's really good. And I I kept finding myself wishing that I were, were you know, read this book with a pencil or something like that, yeah. or some kind of way to like, I wish I could just steal this and steal this and steal this and steal this. Not so much steal it to reuse, but steal it yeah. to like... <clears throat> come back to and let it inform how I look at life. Yeah, like where she says that um, one of the insights he's had about reading lots of books is that some very tedious people have written books. <laughs> yes. That was good. <laughs> that was nice. Yes, he had several good insights into the world as well. Yeah. And I, I very much appreciated the way that she and Ames, through her, was able to move between the poetic and the prosaic. She always knew yeah. when to put in Something like, and the Cubs were playing Cincinnati. Yeah. To just sort of, not deflate it, but but just bring it back and land it all and ground it all. And she always knew exactly when to do it. And you never felt that she was pushing the prosaic or the poetic 
but uh, no, they were she very was nicely very balanced. Fully mingling them together to highlight one another, and to you never felt like, oh, here's the boring poetic part, right? It all sort of yeah. In this sense, it's interesting to compare her to someone else whose story we weren't crazy about, but writing we loved was, which was Hemingway. I think she is, she's masterful at the craft. Yeah, no question about that. But whether or not she pulls off the story, you fellows read Hemingway. We did read Hemingway. Is it? Would would you say it's fair to say she's the best prose stylist, along with Hemingway, that you've read in, for example, this year? (laughs) The best prose stylist. Yeah, I put her up there. I, I don't know the list, but it it would be hard. I would think to the list of what we've read in terms of prose stylists the past year. Pure, without a doubt, the top would be Austin for me. Yeah, it'd be Hemingway, Austin, Robinson, and maybe Twain. (laughs) Not not Stoker, not Steinbeck. Steinbeck isn't a... No. He's purple as our... He can be a little purple. I like to use the word purple as well. Do you? Yes. If I was on this podcast, we'd probably overuse the word purple. <laughs> it's all right. I'm also fond of a Chesterton quote about dragons. <laughs> so I like that one, how too. How does that go? I can never quite remember it. <laughs> but you're always quoting it? But I, I quote it all the time. It yeah. comes up. They sometimes call me the Chestertonian phantom, and I have to remind them that I'm the mysterious phantom. Huh. Anyway, that was a splendid discussion of Ames. I think none of us deserves to pay the piper just yet, but anything. Sorry, did I just spit all over you when I said pay the piper? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm standing six feet away from you, and you totally covered me. SeaWorld and the killer whales. (laughs) Yes, Shamu. Somehow at times I've been called the... Shamu Phantom. The Shamu Phantom, but that one doesn't come up quite as much. But I definitely do correct them at that point. It's the mysterious Phantom. What what else stuck out to you fellows about this novel? There was a lot about fathers and sons. Let's talk perhaps about the grandfather. What did you think about the grandfather? He was... It was something else. He was intense. Did you respect the grandfather? Did you find him worthy of respect, or did you think he was a crazy old coot? Well, I believe John when he says that he respected him and that he doesn't feel like he can do justice to his the respect that he commanded because every story sounds eccentric and crazy. Um, and I think I know people like that that are sort of larger than life and... Um, if I start to tell stories about them, they're going to sound like just wild-eyed, crazy people, but who command my respect. Trying to figure out who you're talking about. Oh, uh, don't think too hard. Yeah. <laughs> I have no theory on this. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I respect the grandfather, but I think he's a man to, to be respected, at least in the world of the novel. Well, one thing that intrigued me about the novel is that I wasn't sure in reading it whether I really got a clear view of anyone but Ames. I only right. really got a two-dimensional... I only really was ever allowed to see anyone like the way that Ames saw them. So I, I was surprised by how little... I suppose there's another novel where we find out more, but I was surprised by how little we learned about his wife and why she married him, how, especially for a book written by a woman, how two-dimensional the women were allowed to... You'd, you'd almost, if this was, book was written by a man, want to uh, accuse it of sexism or accuse the author of just not knowing how to write women because they're, they're very flat and stereotypical sort of traditionally female characters in this book, which I found rather interesting. I believe that's not the case in the the housekeeping though part of the art of this book is Ames doesn't do always the thing that you're thinking about that would seem natural which is just go ahead and tell you what's going on he keeps things secrets and that's supposed to create you know the tension and mystery that you're sort of building towards so part of it's just Ames talks about whatever is on his mind and he doesn't really seem to care too much about I don't know. Did you find yeah, that it's full of digressions right, and meanderings? Did you find that to be a, a strength of the novel, or was it ever irritating not to well, have a more? In terms of the novel, it makes sense. He's writing this to his boy, who already knows his mother, and so he doesn't need to explain all these things. He's explaining what he thinks he needs to explain, and then he's old, and I think he's naturally given to just digressing and meandering thoughts, and so that's what you get in the book. She did a nice job of sort of letting him repeat things, or almost like he didn't remember something that he'd written earlier in certain portions of the novel. Yeah, and also misremembering things. There's, I can't remember the part, but there's one portion where he says that, oh, it's the baseball game, the guy who, he said that he knows that he never wore a glove, 
but he remembers him as wearing a glove and that's the way that he's going to remember it. And so that's where the novel kind of shows its hand the most when it, in relation to memory in the sense that you don't know how much of this you can actually trust. This is an old man remembering his past the way he wants to rem- remember it. Yeah, and there are, there are several points like that. Not just the baseball game. Is it the church burning down? There's a scene there that, oh yeah, he imagines his dad having hand-fed him the bread. Yeah, that's right. But he never did. But he chooses to imagine it that way and remember it that way. And that's why he hand-fed the bread to his son. It was because he wanted to give his son the experience that he imagined that he had with his dad that one time and wished it had happened that way. Yeah. yeah. Kind of- and so she's wanting you to ask these questions about our relationship to our memory and our perceptions of ourselves and... Whether well, it goes it's more along- valuable to create these stories of ourselves and whether those stories have meaning. Ames talks about that sort of thing yeah. when he's talking about the nature of religion and the idea that, man, I can't remember because it's in the middle of the novel, but he, he, he says there are two insidious ideas. One's unbelief and the other is that religion is real, and but your belief in it is what's not credible or something like that. And he goes on this big thing about how it's our own individual experience of religion that gives it credibility. So it's this whole world of, I make my faith, my spirituality meaningful. What makes it meaningful is that it's mine. And so throughout the course of this whole whole novel, what makes it meaningful, what makes the memories meaningful is not the truth of it, but that it, they're John's memories. And they're John's memories and John's perceptions as he's handing them over to his son. And, and of course, there is a truth to that. Like, I mean, if this is the way it is, his son's going to read someday this journal and he's going to see the people he knows and hear the stories he knows and see himself through the eyes of his father. And it's going to be very different than the way he knows it. And he's going to come to know his father some through through the course of that. Yeah. And and the other reason it's effective too is he says that he's the kind of guy who he's written just as much as Augustine. Yeah. Right. So he's just the kind of guy who likes to write, and here he is, he's going to die. He knows he's going to die, and he's not going to have time to talk to his son. And so this is the best thing he can do, is this is the way he can talk to his son. And so he's talking to his son all, this, all throughout this novel. In that sense, it's sad and sweet. and It lends it some poignancy. And I also thought it was a good m- mechanic of suspense, because you only get a very two-dimensional point of view of his wife, of, of, of young Jack Boughton, and you're always sort of wondering what's going on at the periphery. You're wondering how much his wife is perhaps enjoying Mr. Boughton's company, and you wonder what's going to happen. You wonder how much his wife is perhaps a I mean, he more or less says he knows she doesn't love him the way that, you know, she couldn't. He's, you know, twice her age or whatever. He knows that, you know, she's she's still a young woman and isn't feeling everything the same way that he's feeling everything. And in some sense, he admits that he's giving us a two-dimensional picture of her. And you're always wondering what's going on behind the scenes. And uh, I think it lends the novel what sort of plotting suspense that it has. Plotting T-T-I-N-G, not plotting like the novel didn't plot like me who has sometimes been called the plotting phantom (laughs) after giving a speech like that can you list all the names you've been called well the mysterious phantom there you go the jurassic phantom the republican phantom republican huh the democratic phantom both sides of the aisle the horrifying blood-stained phantom of doom (laughs) that's a good one Various others. Shamu, don't forget. The Shamu Phantom. The Pulitzer Prize winning Phantom. Really? Yes. That's a... (laughs) Things are really pretty easy to get. (laughs) So, (laughs) fathers and sons. Anything else we want to say about the fathers and sons and all that sort of thing that runs through the novel? I thought it was interesting, perhaps, uh, just something to point out, that the grandfather and the father both sort of disappoint Ames, both sort of disappear out of their respective sons' lives. The the grandfather sort of retreats into hardness and into sort of asceticism, and the father ends up doing just the opposite, retreating into luxury and a larger, broader, more worldly view. And then Ames strikes some kind of a balance. I don't know what to say about that, besides, isn't that often the way of fathers and sons? They sin in opposite directions from each other and then end yeah, up... the same direction. They both just disappear. They both end up doing the same thing, but in a different way, reacting against each other. So that was nicely done and resonant, I thought. Mm-hmm. Now, we mentioned Robinson being a woman. 
One thing I've never been called is the womanly phantom because I think it's pretty obvious that I am the mas- masculine testosteronic phantom, as I've often been called. <laughs> yeah. Multiple people have been inspired to coin the word testosteronic based <laughs> solely on seeing me, the, the testosteronic phantom, as they call me. But the very image of manhood. The very image of manhood, yes. Robinson, though, not the very image of manhood. A woman. <laughs> no. In fact, and I always think it's interesting to ask in a book written by a woman where she's writing about a man, does she in fact do a good job? Does she mischaracterize men? Does she portray us accurately? Are there ways in which she fails us, uh, certain sides of aims that she just doesn't know to give us, or does she pretty much nail it? Wow, I hadn't thought of this. Take your time. Um, This might be where you pull the lever. Where I pull the lever on both of you? I'm going to say she nails it. I think what she nails is a... Effeminate sort of a man, perhaps. An effeminate sort of, you know, mainline-ish congregationalist pastor guy. I've I've known John Ames-style people, men, in fact. So, yeah. There's nothing at the end of that. that, Oh, yeah. I'm on board with that. I think that she, to answer your question, nails it. It could be completely because she did choose an effeminate sort of man that a woman could write from his perspective, but she also seems to do a decent job with Jack. Is it Jack Bofton, Jack Bowden, however you say his name? Bowden, so I said. I said it is Bowden. Jack Bowden. Maybe it's Bufton. Bufton, yeah. Bowden. Bowden. Bufton. Bufton. Jack Bufton. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> that show, that's probably it. <laughs> so she seems to at least have enough imagination to get it from his perspective. Well, what about... Boofton. Let's talk about Boofton. As I now degree that he shall be called... Boofton. <laughs> no, no, no. That's rather silly. And if I am most known as the serious phantom, after the mysterious phantom, it, we'll, we'll call him Boughton, as I believe he should be called... The serial phantom. No. Serial is a terrible podcast that killed my wife. Really not a big fan of it. Did I mention that? You did. Okay, good. Boughton. Uh, he's a... What was your wife's name again? Beatrice. I I know I remember all the details and history of myself. Beatrice. You can ask me anything and I'll answer it exactly the same way that I did earlier. Being as I am a human being, the mysterious phantom. So, Jack Bowton. Yeah, he's a son that's loved by his family, even though what? He, he's a bit of a rotter. Are there sons like that? Did that part of it ring true to you fellows? Yeah, there are sons like that. That are rotters, and yet the whole family just thinks they walk on water? I have known sons like that. Yeah. It's true. She is. Very true. We are. We are proving that she is good at <laughs> drawing real people in real situations. Yes, that was a absolutely brilliant answer. You've passed another round of man, <laughs> as Mr. Mensel has so thoughtfully named my most dangerous of games. I thought you named it that. Yeah, <laughs> I think you did. You didn't name it that. Who wants to avoid falling down a hole? That's your mysterious phantom impression? I was trying to do who wants to be a millionaire, but I oh, really yes. make it work. Yes. <laughs> Wow, it's getting late. <laughs> yes, yes, I think this mysterious gamer must draw to a conclusion very soon. Did you find yourself wanting to forgive Ames or feeling good towards him once you found out the secrets? Did you find that you had pity for him the way that... You mean Bowden? I meant Bowden. <laughs> I was trying to figure out what I was forgiving. I'm coming. I was if I had any integrity at all, I'd be levering myself right now. <laughs> I will stay my hand for the good of the game and the good of this podcast, which I have come to enjoy quite a bit. I find this discussion to be most stimulating. Oh, so did we find sympathy for John Bufton? Did you find sympathy for Bufton? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I suddenly started talking like (laughs) that pirate captain. (laughs) He's changing shapes. In any case, did, did you find yourself having a similar view of Bufton as... Robinson did, and as Ames did, or did you think he was a sort of a rotter? I don't know. 
<laughs> if you just look at it plot-wise, this seemed to be the most contrived, politically driven point of the novel. It's like, here you have this contemplative book about a pastor drawing to the end of his life, and then suddenly it's about segregation. And he gets to follow in the steps of his, yeah. you know, father and grandfather as first anti-slavery, then segre- anti-segregation. Yeah, which, in that term... have it have least, a... Yeah. At least woven in. Yeah, it's but. it's definitely a theme, and it closes some loops and gives a sense of closure and continuity to the end of Ames's life in that in that sense. But it doesn't mean that I didn't kind of go, ah, come on, <laughs> when it happened. Kind of lame. Yeah. It's sort of, that's, that's where it most sort of fell into the stereotype that when I was dreading it, as I mentioned during that uh, section where we talked about our baggage, I mentioned I was dreading sort of the kind of novel that I think of my mom as reading, the novel that spans generations and gets made into a Lifetime family movie or whatever that channel is, Hallmark family movie. That was the part that sort of felt the most like reminiscent of that sort of thing. But as you said, it was set up. I don't know, though. It's the kind of novel that that's that's the sort of thing that makes President Obama and the Gospel Coalition and all those fellows feel like the novel is really deep and profound. And yet, at the end of the day, what does she really say about any of that? I suppose racism's bad. and You shouldn't abandon your wife and children. You shouldn't abandon your wife and children. And being a father is hard. And being a son is hard. And, and racism exists on both sides, not just one. And it's just... War is but bad. whatever you do, you should follow your heart and your passions, yeah. even if they lead you to, on the one hand, neglect and abandon your child, and on the other hand, abandon your dying father. Yeah, I mean, it's it's disappointing in the sense that all the other stuff was just said through Ames, political points, the congregationalist points she was trying to make, and then suddenly the narrative is saying it too. And that always is a little bit irritating when the story suddenly is telling you. Stacking the, the deck, as yeah. It that's were. that's what a lot of people had issues with Flannery O'Connor for is that her stories tell you exactly what she's trying to tell you, and so it's built into her world. Which she did it on purpose. She said she's trying to scream at everybody, and she screams at you. Whether or not that works is not here or now. But it seems out of place here, where there really was no plot until suddenly there was. Yeah, uh, that's all I have to say. But that petered out a little bit. Yeah. My statement there? Yes, are you prepared oh. to die? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, it, it, there there was no plot, and then there was a plot, and... I mean, I thought what you were saying was good, but you sort of lost the thread there. Yeah. I'm, I'm prepared to die. Just pull the lever. <laughs> I've lost my own plot. <laughs> I think I shall pull the lever now, and you shall meet your demise. Oh, no. In fact, I think I'll pull both levers, because, Mensal, I just don't like you very much. <laughs> I thought you were having fun. I was, but... It's all right. Hey, um, just... I called somebody. We just keep talking to him. It'll be okay. You know, it's just not real fast. What are you guys talking about? Nothing. It's fine. You just, uh... Why are you pulling the lever on him again? Because he has committed a leverable offense. Which is... Just... What's the podcasting? Yes. That you're doing really, really well right now, by well, the I didn't way. Think, I mean, it was okay. You're, you're, really, was you're actually really great it's and really good. funny. Oh, well, thank you. You're an excellent podcast host. You know, that means a lot to me. Good. You got an empty host position? Maybe you can take it. No! Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in the business of destroying podcasts oh, and bringing on. about their demise. You're pretty good well, at this. I'm sorry. You're actually perpetuating podcasts because of how awesome you are at podcasting. Well, so, for, first of all, I want to thank you guys. That's very not kind of you to say. Yeah. But but second of all, that's it's it's a little depressing considering I this was the first podcast in a series of podcasts that I was going to bring about the demise, kill the hosts, and uh destroy podcasting forever was my plan, so Yeah. Well I, I'm sorry to say this, but yet your plan backfired tremendously. This is a huge success, much better than if Nathan were here. Yeah, well, you this know, is I, fantastic. I'm I'm feeling like I'm going through the first stage of something. I'm <laughs> I'm going to deny deny that that's true. First of all, yeah. Uh, well, you can deny it all you want to, but it's really true. This has been a really fun, entertaining podcast episode, and I think probably it's going to have a great impact and influence on podcasts everywhere. Well, the fact that it's true makes me angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Hey, but, yes, uh, angry, angry, I got angry, a Snickers oh, bar. Do you yeah. want the Snickers bar? Oh. You want oh. the Snickers bar? Yeah, my favorite of candies. Yeah, yeah Snickers, here you go. The very here's greatest the, of candies is Snickers mine bar. now, you see? Yeah, oh, I took oh. it from Chastine. Does that make you happy, though? And without does any it, fee. Does it fulfill? Does it, are you okay now? 
Yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy a Snickers bar. Now willing to accept that you are... Well, no, I, I feel like I want to bargain with you guys now to, yeah. to <laughs> sort of... Uh, I'm, I'm thinking that... that... I thought that was bargaining. He was giving, yeah, you, yeah, the was giving Snickers you the Snickers bar. bar. We were bargaining. Was bargaining. Oh, that's a good point. That's that really. That's so depressing that I missed that. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I'm not a very good mysterious phantom, am I? No. No, but I, you're a really great podcast You know, host. I try really and hard so to be mysterious, though. You can't and, be good at But everything. I think you should just give up the... F- mysterious phantoming and become a podcast host. But, you know, I got into the mysterious... I was excited. I thought I can really make a go of this mysterious phantoming thing and... Yeah. <sighs> you can't always make it work. I think you're I've... a natural-born podcaster, so... You can't always make it work, buddy. That's, <laughs> you can't always... That's a, that's I a great really quote. thank you for that. <laughs> you're <Right>. welcome. <laughs> I want to consider a career in psychiatry, perhaps. <laughs> I thought of it. Um, well, uh, let's see. First I was... In denial, and then I was angry, and then I bargained, and then I got depressed, and, you know, now I'm accepting it. I'm I'm just, I'm a great podcaster, aren't I, guys? Yeah, you yeah, you really are. But a really terrible, mysterious phantom. But you're both in one man. A really terrible, mysterious <laughs> phantom and a really good podcaster. Yeah, well, man. see, that's they part can. of the charm. What makes you a great podcaster is being a terrible, mysterious phantom. If you weren't that, like if you're a normal person, like our previous host, Nathan, then you wouldn't be nearly as... Like charming and funny as you are now, as a really bad mysterious phantom. Granted, that guy was a total square. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm the I'm the I'm like Jim Belushi, a failure. <laughs> I've I've had a I've had a really nice time talking about Gilead. Yeah, we have too. It was fun. It's a good novel, but yeah. not the best. Uh, of all the novels that you mentioned, really, I think it might be the worst one that you've read this year. I don't know about that, but yeah, I mean... I mean, there is Rudyard Kipling. Yeah. Mm, yeah, didn't really do it for you, did it? No, it didn't. Probably did it for you. It was all right. Yeah. I liked that movie, that Jean Favreau. All right. That might be a leaverable offense. <laughs> you know something? I've had, a, I've had a really nice time with you guys. and Yeah, well, I made a call earlier, and I think some people are coming to find you, so just don't, don't go anywhere just yet. Yeah. Just stay with us. Okay. <laughs> Just we, we we like you. You're you're a good guy. Is there another book you'd like to talk about? <laughs> yeah, you ever read the Christmas Carol? Uh Dickens. Yeah, he's a big Dickens guy. Yeah, the Dickens is great. Hey, look, I think uh, somebody's. I think they're here. I'm gonna, somebody's can, at the can door. I let them yeah, why, why don't you go yeah, to hey, the door? Oh, hey, look. It's look, it's these guys in white. Oh, hey, they've uh, dressed in white. They've got some white coats. That's beautiful. <laughs> they're here for you. Hey, fellas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's okay. They, they got you. What the? They got no, you. No. It's okay. No. They're gonna give you. Why? They're gonna take care of you. Hey, easy, easy, easy. This isn't fair. No. You've no. got it. You're okay. Hey, no. it's all right. I'm no. not accepting this. <laughs> Go on. It's gonna be fine. Whew. That's uh That was rough. Yeah. Do you think he noticed that we? Realize that these holes under us, they're just uh, electrical tape. Yeah, I, I don't I mean, know what he never was were. thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the hole over there is real, though. And yeah, um, oh, wait, wait, what is? It? Oh my goodness, guys! Uh, what is? It's Nathan. It's Nathan. Oh. <laughs> I had to grab onto that doorstop to pull myself out. Oh boy. Hi guys! You survived. Hi. Yeah. What happened? Well, I I don't know. The this trap door or something opened up beneath me, and I found myself falling, and I uh, I I was falling into this pit, and I fell and fell, and I grabbed onto the side of the pit, and it took me a couple hours to climb out because I'm so fat. And you just so, seem kind of out of breath. Yeah. Uh, be great if that was a joke. <laughs> um, but uh, it's almost like I'm out of breath just from standing up into a chair. But uh, That's not what it is. It's, it's comforting to know that I'm actually out of breath from climbing out of a abyss. Anyway, uh, we were going to talk about Gilead, right? Let's get started. Well, no, this guy that was here while you were down there, we actually got a really great episode of Gilead with him. So you, you guys talked not, about yeah, we did. Gilead without me? Yeah. yeah. It was actually... 
You know, I I, 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 I deny that that happened. Actually, I don't, I don't think that that happened. No, this guy wow. came, and he, you're not gonna believe it. He had like this really weird, like Zorro, like ten dollar costume on, the Zorro mask and like a purple cape. Well, that sounds. And he sat ridiculous. down. He called himself the mysterious well, Phantom, and he sat down, and we. We had this great episode about Gilead while we waited for the people from the insane asylum to show up and take him away. Does it, and make, does it make you angry? What, 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 what a ridiculous waste of everyone's hey, hey, time. No, no, it makes I, me angry for the people that listen to this podcast. What if I told you we got a really good episode of a podcast out of it and we can give that to you? Some good podcasting. Well, uh, I'd give some, you 20 bucks for it. Some, okay. It's a deal. It's a deal. Okay. Let's, let's yeah, I'm just no you can have some it. great bargaining. Yeah, that's good. But you know, I, I didn't get into... Podcasting for bargaining. It's so depressing that I've that I've stooped to this, guys. Well I just I feel oh man. Life's just not worth it, is it? Yeah, I think you're just gonna have to accept it. Okay, Brandon. I accept it. For you. And for you, Jake. My two best friends. Thanks. Boon companions. Boon companions, yes. I love you guys. <laughs> love you too in a platonic way. Thanks, I, Brandon. I I love you too. <laughs> Come on, guys. Let's go pick some apples. <laughs> you guys want to pick some apples? What? Let's go to the orchard. Get some apples. No. To the orchard. Okay. That's weird. All right. Lever home. Oh. oh. He's still going. Still. That's a, I think, I, is that the still... echo or is that? Oh, the humanity. It's a really long hole that he created here. Yeah. That's a pretty amazing. Well, the Mexican laborers. Mexican labor, yeah, they yeah. can do anything. Oh, no, I'm still blind. It's pretty resonant too. <laughs> Probably should have told him that these were just uh, <laughs> black electrical yeah, tape. Yeah, just black them. electrical tape. This <laughs> <laughs> was the only real one. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I believe, believe that's all, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this podcast i guess i was climbing out of an abyss most of the time i, I hope it was a good podcast uh, it took you a week <laughs> yeah, you're a week that's true <laughs> um, i guess uh this podcast was written and produced by this week jake mentzel and brandon chastine holding their own against that most uh, as they tell me terrible fiends frightening and uh handsome you guys said he looked really good and looked like he was kind of sexy kind of devilish i think in a kind of phantom of the opera kind of quality to him you guys yes. said i thought he was kind of fat and ugly myself I was... <laughs> huh. that's not what i heard <laughs> um, anyway uh thank you for uh keeping the podcast fires alive in my absence guys and thanks for uh, holding your own i'm glad that you managed to survive an encounter with that mysterious phantom um i guess join us next time for christmas carol yeah, go to warhornmedia.com for more amazing content just exactly like this, right, guys? Yes. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much.